Thank you for joining us on the seventh installment of the Motorific Podcast Adventure Series. I am your host, Christy Farrell. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with award-winning author, worldwide motorcycle adventurer, South African tour guide, man of climb, and lesser known of his talents, comedian, all of which we will hopefully touch upon during this interview. Please welcome Rene Cormier. As you know, technical difficulties resulted in only 20 of 60 minutes recording in the first interview. While this one was a definite improvement, yet again, the whole conversation wasn't recorded. Sometimes you eat the bear, and sometimes the bear eats you. Therefore, we're going to call this one a wash, which I hope will ultimately encourage you to see Renee speak in person. At that point, you can ask him about his childhood riding and the moment with a BMW in Africa that changed his life forever. We'll pick up where Renee departs on his Paris-Dakar BMW from Alaska after meeting a few Colombians on the journey. The previous 20 bonus minutes will be tacked on at the end of the interview. At some point on that ride from the from the ferry in Bellingham to Colorado Springs, I had this epiphany that we sometimes get as motorcyclists, and for me, it's one of the one of the best reasons for riding. When you get that idea in your head and it, and it can't leave the helmet, right? It's stuck in there and it's fermenting and burbling away and digesting, and and I just thought maybe this is going to be the one time in my life where I have got a chance to do this around the world trip. That we talk about jokingly because who's got a million dollars and five years off? I had no idea what it was going to take. I didn't know if it was mildly possible or not. So when I got back to Colorado Springs, I had this idea in my head that it was going to be a one year around the world trip. And after a little bit of internet research, I realized that, that although it was technically possible, there really wasn't much point in rushing around the world in a year, at least for me, that you know, you couldn't see anything. And I already proven to myself on this trip to Alaska that I like traveling slow. I like going slow. I like stopping a lot. And one year around the world is uh, that's not the pace for me. It's one hell of an iron butt ride, that's for sure. It's terrible. If yeah. you were to stop in every country, that would be the fastest round the world trip. Yeah. And I'm not sure what the Guinness Book of World Records is. But it's it's something silly like 40 days or 37 days or 50 days. Part of the problem is we don't know how to define around the world. That's one of the tricky things we're talking about around the world trips. But but so, so I decided to approach this planning from another angle. I thought I should just spend all of my money on this trip. Whatever I have, I'm going to spend it all. And I didn't have a lot of money. I mean, I, 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 was, I was okay at saving and I had a little bit of equity in a house. Um, and But I had a lot of stuff in the garage especially a lot of bike stuff and ski stuff and and you can imagine so i just sold it all i sold the house i sold all my clothes my books my furniture everything that could be sold i sold and that garnered free and clear about $35,000 and that was the money that i had for the trip and when i went onto the internet and started looking at people's budgets and this is 2000 and summer of 2002, so there weren't a lot of folks. I mean, there's always been a lot of folks traveling, but not a lot putting them on this Internet thing <laughs> for, for other people to, to review. But there was a few, and there was a few doing it for $30 a day. And I thought in my overly optimistic brain that if they're doing it for 30 then I'm pretty sure I can pop it off for 25 So that was my new mantra for daily budget, 25 bucks a day. So I started doing the math, 25 bucks a day, if I could stick to that, that's 9100 per year. And that means with my $35,000, I can travel around the world for three years and have a little bit left over for you know, emergencies or shipping or price overruns or whatever. I mean, I had no idea what to expect. I'd never done anything like this before. And so in... Uh, at the end of the calendar year, I quit my job, and then I, well, I skied for a month, and then I um, took off on this trip. Crazy, huh? Indeed, but that's kind of what we are. I, I should talk about how I chose the motorcycle, because it's an interesting story. So my uh, my idea, for the motorcycle, I was I was torn between the one of two bikes that I had at the time, that old red and white R100. Yeah. yeah, beautiful little bike, but it's old, it's, it's dependable, you can fix it anywhere. And I had the newer... <laughs> Or eleven fifty, which I had just taken to Alaska, and that, that thing was—I mean, comparing the two, it's it is quite a vast difference. Yeah, apples to oranges, I imagine, oh. as far as tech and comfort and all of that stuff, and also cost though too. So, so I'm driving all of my friends bonkers with this this 
back and forth about which bike to take. Do you take the old bike, old dependable fix-it-anywhere bike, or new fancy technology kind of bike? And the answer came from the most unlikely of places. So the answer actually came from a girl called Amy. Now, I, I started dating Amy a week before I left for Alaska. Now, you can imagine her surprise. We haven't even kissed, and I've gone to Alaska on this trip. I come back a month later and, and decide that, you know, here's this guy who now wants to go around the world in a year, and now it's around the world in three years, and he's starting to sell all this stuff. But she was a good sport about it. And, you know, a couple months into that selling off process, I get an email from Amy, and she says, you know that story? That- trip around the world you're thinking of doing and, and I said yeah she said well I've been thinking about it more and more and, and I think it sounds actually quite fun and, and I'd like to join you on the trip and I said but you're not invited on my trip right this is my trip <laughs> oh wow and she and she says no no I'm not going to go on your bike I'm going to get my own bike right I'm going to learn how to ride and, and I said but Amy you don't know how to ride a bike and she's a bicycle person but she didn't have any motorcycle experience and she came back with a very clever retort and she says but you don't know how to ride around the world do you and i said no you're right i don't so welcome aboard (laughs) (laughs) so she went through the whole she went through the whole process selling and she put her notice in for her job she started selling her house and her goods we went down to the bmw dealership and, and picked the only bike that fit her which was the lord 650 uh gs from bmw and, and the one thing I remembered from all my internet scavenging about budgets, when I came across two people riding two bikes in funny places, they all said the same advice, and that is to take the same bike, or, or at least as close as you could get to the same bike. You know, you could troubleshoot parts, you could carry the same tool, you can carry um, you know, stuff that worked on both motorcycles rather than having two different bikes. Yeah. And so I thought the thing then was to, for me to sell both of those bigger bikes and get the what I thought at the time would be the early 650. But since then, that turned to be probably the best scene of this entire trip for me. And, and I can't claim it as my own. It was Amy's suggestion, I suppose. <clears throat> but I've become a big fan of this middle-sized traveling bike for traveling in funny places for lots of reasons. The first of which is cost. I mean, we I, I travel as a budget traveler, and I think that my budget is not common for a lot of folks out riding and they forget that the money comes out of one big bag of cash and the more that they take out of that bag of cash for the hard goods the less there's left for the trip and we've done a pretty good job in north america of of looking into that bag of cash and thinking okay well i need that suit and i need that helmet and i need those boots and that helmet camera and that bike to do my trip whatever's left over is is left over for the trip but i'm saying we can look at that equation again. You don't need that helmet, and you don't need that jacket. You don't need those boots, right? You can take what you have and go, leaving more money for the trip. But that's a very difficult thing to convince North American guys of. Sure, and it's we, very personal, too. It's very personal. But So we're, we're, we're afraid of this trip not being successful. We're afraid of the trip not going as we expect it to. And so we think that it is worth the money to be spent on the things that we can control. So we can we can get new stuff. It's going to work better than old stuff. It's not going to it's not going to tear. It's not going to leak. It's not going to break down. And we've convinced ourselves that that's that's that is the the, the purchase worth making. But I, I'm going to go on a limb here, and I'm going to say that if you talk to people who have been on the road for more than a month or two or at least six, they will say that that the purchasing decisions for them will all now go towards how do they stay on the road longer, not towards gear. And I think that's a very common thing. I mean, you get on the road, you realize how awesome and epic it is to travel by motorcycle. And you just start thinking, how can I stay out here doing it longer? And it it happens to everyone, especially those who, who have given up the job and given up the house. Those who have to come back to a house and a, and, a, and a job and a family, you know, there's different external pressures there. But for solo travelers who are just open-ended on a trip, it, we, it's like we've discovered the land before time or Shangri-La, and it's every, everything we can do to stay out there longer. So you get a lot of I get a lot of emails. Hey, I'm, I'm on a big trip. I'm thinking about making money on the trip. You know, can I sell stories? Can I sell pictures? And how how do you work? 
along the road, those types of things. And it's an entirely worthwhile venture, I must say. So not to backtrack too much, but this can kind of um, put put in perspective what you had just said. Did you say that you sold the uh, 1150 and the R100 to buy a smaller BMW for this trip? That's, cor- that's correct, yeah. Okay. Which one was it that you uh, ended up purchasing in the end? So, so I ended up, so Amy had the lowered 650, mm-hmm. and I took the tall version of that. So oh, okay. in, two, in 2003, they made a Dakar version. Yeah. So that's the one that I ended up. So the full name of the bike is is a is a 2003 F650 GSA Dakar. Yeah, and for those unfamiliar with the BMW lines, pre 2008, the F series was the single cylinder 650, which is now the G. But uh, yeah, that's kind of cool actually. So you can buy almost the exact same bike that I took around the world now um, in just a little bit different configuration but essentially this the, the motor is the same big one big cylinder up and up and down great gas mileage liftable so you started this journey uh with with a girlfriend at the time and you're both on 650s uh how how far did you get before that situation changed the situation was um when i started the trip he wanted to finish school she had sort of half a degree and, and left lingering. So she wanted to resolve that, finish that before she started this big motorcycle trip. So that left me, I think, nine months to, to travel on my own from, from Canada through the U.S., through Central America, to South America. Then she was going to fly with her motorcycle from the U.S. into Ecuador, and then we would start traveling from there together. And so we did that, and she arrived, and we had a great time. <clears throat> um, but... The longer we traveled, and we'd been traveling for about five months or so, and uh, the, the trip for me, with each passing day, I, I long to be back as a solo traveler. <laughs> and that, that that's kind of a difficult conversation to have with your girlfriend who, who has quit her job and shipped her dog off to her parents and sold everything and learned how to ride a motorcycle and is on sort of the opposite side of the world. And now a guy is saying, hey, this is feels better when I travel alone. <laughs> and it doesn't go over. And you're saying you're staying in a tent every night together. There's no room to hide. Yeah. But so we, you know, I broached the subject and it was not received very well, but I tried to make as mature points as I could. And, and eventually it came to the point where we were going to finish riding in South America and then uh, reevaluate and see what to do after that. Uh, but but five years five months into that South American leg, uh, Amy crashed in Bolivia, and she broke her leg. So um, so she, we had surgery in Bolivia, Ooh. and she went back to the America to to recover and to heal. And then I sent her motorcycle back after her. So it, it we never actually need we we never had to take that second um, awkward. You know, evaluation of your relationship. Right. It it just kind of ended. Um, so you said surgery in Bolivia. I can't imagine of all the countries to have some sort of medical emergency. That would be the last one I would uh, opt to have. In South Africa. Uh, that was our opinion as well. And and uh, when when she first crashed, we went to the the closest clinic, which is not too far away, to get an X ray and just to see. You know, is it is it really bad or is it just a sprain or is it what? But they had no X-ray machine. Now we're thinking, oh, man, like we're 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 in the sticks here. But then we got to a, a big city called Santa Cruz, and they had, um, of course, a, a big Western hospital. That I mean, there is some money in Bolivia. There is, there is, um, and they have a very nice hospital, a very nice Western hospital with an MRI machine and all of the fancy stuff. So we checked in there, and a couple of MRI later, and. Uh, we decided to have to have the surgery there, and they put some screws into her knee, and um, and that ended up costing ten thousand U.S. dollars that surgery. Wow! Now that's, we that's had insurance. Yeah, that's a ton. Of, I mean, that's that's a whole year of traveling for sure. for me. With respect and, to travel, yeah, it's it's a lot. With respect to what the actual cost would be back in the U.S. or Canada, probably um, insignificant. Yeah, but I also think that it was ten thousand because the surgeon knew that we had insurance. Hmm. I, I would I would venture to say that 
if we came in there with just as just you know foreigners with a credit card, it might have been half that or less. Yeah. yeah. So the insurance worked well. I mean, that insurance we paid. My my annual fee for that insurance was about eight hundred dollars, but Amy's was more. Hers was about two thousand because she has baby making parts, and they 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 charge more for those. But um, our deductible was a couple of thousand bucks, and then and then the insurance paid, which was which was lucky for us. Uh, but and then <clears throat> that was the last time that Amy and I rode together. Was there, and I continued traveling alone for for the next little while down to the bottom of South America, and then uh, and then reevaluated my trip at the end of that. And, and what had happened is that in at the end of at the bottom of South America, I I started looking at finances and time, and, and discovered that I just travel way too slow for my original plan. I mean, the original plan was to do one year from from home to the bottom of South America, but it had actually been two and a half years. Wow. So I was having a great time. I I didn't want to change the pace, but I did know that my finances didn't allow me to to jump over to Africa and to continue traveling. So I planned a one-year mid-trip working time back in Canada. So I sent the motorcycle home by sea. I flew home, and I lived on my brother's couch for a year while I did all sorts of odd jobs trying to make money for the second half of the trip. And it was a lot, of, it was a lot easier to save for the second half of the trip because I knew exactly what I was saving for. You know, my budget was $26.40 a day, so I knew it was possible to travel for not a lot of money. And I don't think traveling at a reduced budget impacted the quality of the trip in fact i think it was i think it was more authentic not having much money you need to throw yourself out there a lot more even if you don't even if you don't want to do it some days sure and so after one year in canada i boxed up the motorcycle again and then sent it to africa and africa i thought you know, after traveling in South America for so long and getting used to how it works and the language and the borders and the money, I thought, okay, this is this is fun traveling. I'm enjoying this, but Africa, that sounds dangerous, right? The, uh, I don't know anything about most of the places. I mean, I was there as a youngster, 15 years earlier or whatever it was. No, 12, 12 years earlier. But Africa seemed on the next level of adventure for me. And I, I'd given myself four months to get through the South Africa up to Djibouti and exit at um, into Yemen. Danger is one hell of a mistress. She is, isn't she? Yeah. And the less you know, the more dangerous she appears. And the more exotic and intriguing. Yeah, for sure. It's all of that stuff. Um, so I was a bit spooked, but um, but I had a great time. I ended up, I ended up spending time in Africa, my time there ended up to be, uh, well, I was there for a year and a half, more than a year and a half in Africa. So a year over my, my target date, but I was just having too much fun. I mean, the riding is spectacular. And, and one of the places we fell in love with was Namibia. I mean, this country that I couldn't even pronounce correctly. And, and here it is, the second least populated country in the world, and the whole place is open to you. Friendly folks, beautiful roads, mostly gravel, and animals still. I mean, that, that was the thing that, that got me. There were beautiful roads everywhere up to this point, but no one had giraffes on the side of the road, and no one had elephants on the side of the road. And that, for me, re- really rounded off this adventure style of motorcycling. So great camping, um, lots of wildlife, slow pace, cold beer. I, I looked fondly at that time in, in Southern Africa. Well, luckily we get back there a lot now, but that part of the trip was a very rewarding one for me. And yeah. seeing as that you have a background in, uh, I wouldn't say animal husbandry, but you're some sort of exotic animal whisperer, I'm sure that that made things just all that more gratifying. No, my, my thing with animals is um, I, just enjoy, I just enjoy wondering why do they do what they do? So I'm I'm quite happy to sit at a sit in a tree and watch a giraffe 
and trying to figure out why does he eat those leaves instead of those ones, and why does he spend this time much time going on that one? It's 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 a it's a process called um, you know animal behavior ethology. I just had my wife deliver me a coffee in my truck. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where our kid is, but anyway. <laughs> this is great. He's on a motorcycle yeah. somewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that whole Africa time was just spent watching animals and living around a campfire for a while. Like, it was, it was spectacular. Great weather. Good food and a lot of meat. So, you know, your your days turn into driving for a little bit and then looking for a camp a campsite. And the campsites are are quite great. And a lot of them are, or some of them are, close to a lodge. So you could go and put your tent up and and do your washing and get that started, get this fire started, and then walk over to the lodge and and buy a cold beer from the bar or pop in their pool or use their Wi-Fi. So it. It was very, it was as rustic or as not rustic as you wanted that day, which I thought was super fantastic. Yeah. So that's why I spent a lot more time there than I initially thought. But I did eventually need to get out of there, you know, visas ticking away and money ticking away. So I got up to to the top of, sorry, the, the, the right-hand side of Africa and into Ethiopia and Djibouti and then took a, a little wooden boat across to Yemen and continued to through that Arabian Peninsula, uh, Yemen, Oman, Dubai. And then Dubai, I, I got stuck there waiting for visas. But eventually, <clears throat> visa situation sorted out and headed off to Pakistan, Iran, the stands, and up to Russia and Mongolia. Originally, the plan was to, to continue... You know, from the east side of Russia down through Indonesia, Malaysia, Australia, New Zealand. But, but I knew now that that the pace that, of which I was traveling, and the pace of which I was spending money, it would not allow for that last New Zealand Australia leg. So by the time I got to South Korea, which um, which was now five and a half years after I had started this trip, mm-hmm. I was out of cash again, and and rather than try and push on and, and do it at a reduced budget. Um, I knew that I just needed to finish the trip um, with a couple of dollars left. And I sent the motorcycle to Long Beach, California, and drove up to drove up to Vancouver. Arriving in October of 2008 um, with 96,000 miles on the motorcycle. And I think 45 countries uh, visited which is great. That, that's what I was set out to do. I'd set out to drive around, and I was intensely proud. And people often ask, you know, wouldn't you, wouldn't you rather have gone like you and Charlie and have a big support crew and the helicopters and the, and the chase trucks and stuff? And, and I think, that, you know, there's no way that, that I would enjoy it. I mean, I would have enjoyed it, but I'm, I'm very, very proud of the way that, that I did it because when I came up to Vancouver on that last set of border crossings, you know, the the bike has been mangled and stickered and repaired, and I looked a fright, I'm sure. And I got that last set of stamp, stamp, stamp into the passport, and I crossed back into Vancouver or back into Canada for the last time. I just had this overwhelming feeling of, I did it. You know, I, I, had screwed, I have screwed up every day of that trip, doing something incorrect or wrong or whatever. But that doesn't matter because... I had done more things correctly than I had done incorrectly, and I had gone around the world on my own steam. Clearly, and when you make it back alive, you have to say that obviously you did something right. <laughs> yeah, and, and it was it was such a fantastic feeling, and of course that that feeling at the end of the trip that happens daily, and this is this is the thing that I try and tell people to expect on these big trips is that we are. Part of the problem of listening to guys like me or or reading books written by guys like me or or and especially ride reports on on websites is that it's easy to speak um, in the past tense about a big ride and, and make it sound very full of bravado and bravery and nonchalant like, oh we did that big mountain pass or we did we did prue and it was great and we did a wheelie or whatever i mean i'm 
my motorcycling skills is solidly mediocre. If I have a skill, it's going slow in weird places. That's what my skill is. But I, uh, my, my skills as a, as a motorcycle rider are very average. So when I see a big, lumpy, rooted, rocky pass, I am terribly nervous. And I wonder, am I gonna, uh, am I, can I get up that thing? Can I get up? Can I not? Am I going to fall? How am I going to get help? I mean, all of that stuff that we always have as riders, so that I'll just speak for myself, that I have, that, that, that rears its head every day. Even sometimes just in little small quantities, but it all, it's always there. And so what happens for me is you spend the whole day slaying these little dragons, right? He's going to get up that pass, and you get up the pass over the other side. There's a beautiful vista, hot coffee at the top at a little lady's house. And it's like, yeah, I can do it. And it's these daily up and downs, up and downs, up and downs. And we, these little challenges that I don't find that I really get in this now, the default world. You know, the nine to five work, uh, 50, uh, 50, work, 50 weeks working, two weeks holiday. Like this world over here in North America, the world that I had left. I never had that series of, of really challenging myself that way. And, and throwing things full of fear in front of you, and you've got to get up it. And the worst part is, is you, you're doing it intentionally. Yeah, it's very true um, what you're saying. And by the way, you speak for me too, because uh, <laughs> basically well, I... any of those any of those little moments were always a challenge for me. And I know I could get through it. It's just um, you know how to do it, and you know that you can do it. You just have to get the courage to let off the clutch and let off the brake and just do it. Yeah. And uh, it's refreshing to hear. It's, it's refreshing to hear a guy admit that because you usually don't. It's usually the bravado and the great story. And I'm sure a lot of my stories about my travels are peppered with the clenched moments where I talk about, you know, something that sounds way worse than it really is. But to me, anything with the rut that's downhill <laughs> is something I have to pause over. It's true. I, I don't have a lot of those moments during the day where I really have to convince myself that that I can make this happen and that it's a challenge and I definitely think we take those moments for granted yeah and I think it's I think it's dangerous for for those in my position or your position who have done longer trips not to remind beginner riders or people who coming into this adventure world sport that that those events those things will happen and 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 those feelings will will creep up you know ride safe and ride slow and you'll Funny, funny enough how you say that your rutted, uh, crazy moment was rewarded with hot coffee at the end. I actually had that, not to segue into that story, we can talk about it offline, but I actually had that heading to Starbucks a couple weekends ago going with a friend where he's like, would you like to take the street version or would you like <laughs> to take the brief off-road? And I'm thinking, how bad can it be, right? <laughs> so, so there was one of those clenching moments where I'm thinking, uh, I can do this. It's just going to take me a couple of seconds. But um, yeah, I do miss I do miss those moments on a bike where I'm completely and utterly challenged and kind of beside myself and probably embarrassed if there's someone else around because they're thinking, standing yeah. at the bottom of the hill with their hands open, like, come on, you can do it. Yeah. And it's just, it's those moments that totally priceless and they're character building. They, they're they're totally they are totally that's that's I haven't used those words but that I'm gonna start stealing them because that's, that's those are those are the perfect words for it and and what I find interesting is when you're especially traveling alone and you've got this hill or this road on the map and you're not sure about sometimes you're not always in the mood for these adventures right but you must that's your day of traveling you need to get to the next place and and sometimes you know when you when you're up for it, you know, it's early in the morning, everything's great, you're full of fuel, you're had a coffee, you're, you're ready to take on, on this adventure and this crazy road. But some days, you are not up for it. You, you've got a headache, it's been raining, you're cold, you've got the shits, whatever it is. <laughs> and, and, and you've got to now do this thing. And you've got to, you've got to summon, summon up uh, from way down deep this, <laughs> this thing to get going. Yeah, people. I think people sometimes think that it's always blue sky and sun when you're traveling, but it's um, no, it's not always that. Quite the contrary. But uh, but if you were to ask us about it, we have a very humorous comeback and some sort of anecdotal story to share where it doesn't even come close to describing the amount of fear, trepidation, stress, 
um, in the actual moment, but we have a very colorful way of, of recounting that story. Yeah. Yeah, we do. I, I agree. So how long after you got back did you start thinking, well, you know, people are really starting to enjoy these stories I'm sharing around the bar. Maybe I should put this into a book. Yeah, that, the book idea started about three quarters of the way through the trip, somewhere around Dubai. I had a lot of time in Dubai to, to think because I was there for, for several weeks waiting for visas. And I started to think that um, that I was having a great time, didn't want it to finish. And I made the connection in my head that maybe the reason I was having a great time on this tour was from all of the advice that other people were giving me. And and it was a bit of a lightning bolt moment. I thought, holy crap, like I, I need to I need to somehow give back to this motorcycle community. So I would I've been quite active on motorcycle forums and writing out my visa procedures and how much did I pay and who do you talk to and I would just throw that on these motorcycle forums for following travelers to to use. And I thought, well, maybe I should just put all of the emails to friends that I've been writing and the, the odd website submission. And if I just link them all together by the end of the trip, I could actually maybe book at it. But I wasn't, um, I wasn't sure that, that my word smithing abilities would have been able to carry the story. So I started to think about having this book as a picture book, a large format, co- rather a coffee, coffee table style. So that was where the idea first started, was uh, yeah, somewhere on the road near Dubai. And so what and you're when saying, I got home, it took... Sorry to interrupt. What you're saying about Dubai taking three weeks for you to get through visa-wise is that they don't like Canadians. <laughs> yeah, it was eight weeks. And it, was, it was the Islamic Republic of Iran that I had a problem with. They had a problem with me. So that's where the, the book started. And I started writing uh, or compiling it in earnest uh, when I returned. And it, um, it was great. I would return to, to Edmonton, the, the city where my family lives. And a friend of mine, a high school, sorry, a, a schoolhood friend had a house with an unfinished basement. And I asked him if I could live in the basement. And he didn't understand why I would want to because it was, you know, it's unfinished and it's cold. And But he didn't understand that I was coming from a tent. And so this thing was awesome, right? I had a I had a bathroom, I had walls, it was dry, it was clean. And so I would be up normally four or five to write for a few hours. And then I would go do some construction work. I'd come back, write for a few more hours. And we were done within about eight months, that, that book. Uh, went to press. We, we printed 2500 the first run, which is all the money that I could borrow from friends and family. And used up my last little bit of money. And we sold out in a year, which is great. So we did a, a second run of 5500 and we're just now at the tail end of that run. So we'll have to actually reprint here. I suppose by the time we get back um, from Africa, we'll, we'll set up for another reprint. And uh, I think part we're nearing part of where the first round of audio picked up, which was me congratulating you on doing all of this basically independently prior to picking up a distribution deal and garnering uh, what awards... Yeah, the, that that little. But we were very fortunate. We, um, I didn't know that there were such things as book awards and such, um, because I, I'm I'm new to the publishing world, to the writing world. This is the first book I'd ever written. I, I'd done a lot of copywriting as part of my job, but this was very new. So the the book was submitted for an independent book publishers association awards in New York City, and it won the bronze medal for travel essay in 2010. And it also won an award for the cover art, which was done by my good friend Swanee in Colorado Springs, and he also did the layout as well. And it was a it was a finalist in in a in a contest for short prose and literature. So we were, I mean, very excited about having awards on a book. Like, can you imagine a award winning book? Yeah, and this is all done by yourself, uh, press wise and marketing wise, prior to garnering a distribution deal. And of course, if you are just now wondering, <laughs> eventually Christy's going to actually say what book this is. It's the University of Gravel Roads. Yeah, it was all done. It was all done on our own. Um, you know, I had a, I had a fantastic guy, Swanee, who laid the book out and, and did the cover for me. And he was instrumental in doing, doing that. But the rest of it is just by fumbling around and, and going, you know, not 
not so unlike traveling around the world. You ask a lot of questions, screw up, fix the screw up, and and try and make it as good as you can get it. And I think that helped us in in a lot of ways. And then the, the what people don't tell you is that once you've got the book published or printed, and now you're sitting with a thousand of them in your garage, now you've got to sell the bloody things. And and that is that is the tricky part. And for me it was extra tricky because the paper that we needed to use in this in this book, and it's hundred and sixty pages glossy paid paper, paper is unbelievably expensive. And so the the retail price on the book had to come in at forty Canadian or thirty five US. And for a book that's ten nine nine ninety five or nineteen ninety five, I think it's a bit of an easier pitch you know someone gives you a 20 dollar bill and they get a book but here we're asking for twice that to make the book fly and i didn't know if that was if, if that was going to work was it not going to work and then all of the marketing must be done on your own as well so i would send books all over the show and i also didn't think about if i need to if i need to mail a book it is bloody expensive to mail it because you have an oversized book i was going to remind you about the shipping yeah oversized and heavy but it's um and, and you know who also doesn't like it is the bookstores don't like the book only because it's very wide. It's it's eight and a half by eleven landscape, oh. and so for them to for them to put it on the shelves, if they put it with the cover out or face out, then it takes the spot of three normal books. And if they stick it spine out, it kind of hangs out into the aisle by four inches. Interesting thing to note is to go into your local bookstore and actually measure out the shelf space to determine whether or not you yeah. really want to move forward with this awkward book shape. Probably That's... something that does not occur to anybody. Right. And I didn't, I had no, I, I didn't think about that. And then, but when the bookstores now call me and say, listen, why can you reprint it with a different size? I said, the, the book wasn't printed for your selling benefit. The, the book is printed for people's reading enjoyment. So they just need to suck it up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love that. Um, and something that I think this iteration of, of interview we, we might have left out was your use of we and, and how exactly that came to be, oh. how you, you met your wife. Yes, yes. <laughs> the lovely coffee deliverer in, in the, the middle of the, the morning. The lovely coffee deliverer, yeah. So when I was in Cape Town, I, I met a very cute girl called Colette. And um, we, we started hanging out more and more together. Um, but eventually, after a few months in Cape Town, I needed to go traveling, right? my The, the weather was getting better. The, the rains were stopping. So I needed to go. And so... We said this teary goodbye in Cape Town. You know, it's been great, but, you know, I wish you all the best in your life. And away I went. And then I get an SMS from her, and I realize that my phone works in the next country. So SMS back and forth and back and forth, and then emails back and forth and back and forth. And and I actually got a chance to go back to Cape Town and visit her once. Um, I had a shock problem in northern Africa. I flew back to get it fixed. And uh, while I was stuck in Dubai, I flew back to visit her as well. And we were having this great quasi-relationship, as, as best as you can when one person is traveling far, far away. And, and two years later, when the trip finished, I flew back to, to Cape Town and to confront her and say, listen, we, we've been, this is a long-distance relationship, and it's ridiculous. I mean, you, you couldn't get further apart on the planet. <laughs> so we neither need to stop it altogether or we need to continue it properly and someone has to move somewhere either i need to move to africa or you need to move to canada and we um of course there was no reason to stop it it was it was great so we decided to play it out and see how it happened so she came back to canada following or that in a couple of months and we were married four years ago on the first day of spring in canada in Edmonton, and then we got married again in South Africa on their first day of spring, six months later, Aww. for her family. And then, uh, and then, twenty months ago, we had our, our first boy, our, our only child, little boy, Jacques, was born just outside of Cape Town. So we're a traveling, a traveling group circus. of three. We are a total circus. We're like we're the, the Cormier Circus. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, we spent, that kid has never lived really in a house for very long because we always travel so much. So he's a great traveling baby. We don't buy new toys. We just change the room. 
<laughs> Changing your latitude. Yep. Yeah, so things are great. So now what we end up doing, we're on the road for the first six months of the year. We do as much talking as we can to anyone that will listen about adventure riding. Um, sometimes we'll speak at insurance companies and, and banks and those kind of speaker events, more proper speaker events about uh, risk-taking and um, giving giving them all these suit people an idea of what an alternate life might be. And then in July, we head to Africa for six months where we do guided tours of, of Southern Africa on the motorcycles. So yeah. Colette, Colette used to be on all of those trips with me in Africa, but since baby came along, she now hangs out in Cape Town um, near her folks, and I'll be on tour. And I'll come down on the weekends or between trips to see them and hang out with them. And then around Christmas, we fly back to Canada to start the winter motorcycle shows again. So our year is really split into two chunks. The, the first six months are driving and talking about, about motorcycles. And the last six months are on the bike driving in Africa. It's a great gig. I was just about to say, couldn't, couldn't probably pick a worse gig. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's exhausting. I mean, it's, we, we don't have that, that base of, uh, you know, so I end up doing like these chats from, from the car or from the kitchen in the hotel, or you, you just must make a plan to make it work. And sometimes like, there's a lot of stuff going on now with, with people coming to Africa and um, uh, trade show stuff that, exciting trade show stuff that's coming on and exciting filming stuff that's coming online where I just need a bit more time to do it all. And then we go to the beach. Colette and Baby will go to the beach or the zoo or somewhere. I'll sit in the car and work. And we we get it worked out. We we don't know exactly how it works. It's going to work out every day, but we, we hammer through. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and hopefully this time the recording stuck. <laughs> yeah, I hope so as well. But it's always a new story, always different. You're always changing it up a little bit, so I feel privileged to at least have heard two kind of different iterations of um, the same origin of motorcycles in your life. Yes. Yeah, it's great fun. I, I just i am kind of tickled that people still want to hear about it. So we're... If if this thing fails again, we'll do it again. <laughs> there are plenty of people out there who I think the hardest sell on a journey of any kind and duration, and, and you can correct me since you talk to people a lot about this, is the actual commitment to quit your job and to sell stuff. That is yep. probably the hardest part, at least as far as it was for me, to to do it. Yeah, it's that first step is the is the trickiest one. Yeah, because you know, at least as far as as far as American culture, you know, not to make us sound tangible, asset oriented, but you work very hard to get where you are. And, and I'm sure that's the same in a lot of other cultures, but I'll only speak for, for what I know. You work very hard to get where you are. And then suddenly you have this decision to potentially travel. And it's something that's kind of foreign to you. And you have to make this full on commitment to basically get rid of everything that you've accumulated and quit a job that you may or may not be able to get back. And so it's a huge risk. And, uh, yeah. and I think that, you know, while it's supremely fulfilling, it's very hard to cross that threshold. Once you do, you'll never look back. But I think just getting up to that point is pretty tough. No, it's, it's very difficult. And what, what ends up happening is you, you jump, you, you, you move yourself from one set of, of criteria for success and you move it to one that exists in a parallel universe, right? So yeah. the, the one is, is, is how big is the house and, and what kind of car do you drive and what's your annual income and, and credit cards and what kind of vacations do you take? And you abandon that for, but most of the world exists. Well, let's, let's talk about North American culture anyway. Most of North American culture exists on that. And then you try and go to another one where you trade it in for life experiences and how many different cultures do you get to hang out with and, how many places have you had a beer? Different countries that you had a beer in, and and it's a tricky one because because everyone in the consumer world is against you on it, right? The banks the banks will say invest it or buy put it into a real estate. Um, your your parents will say save it, um, but there's a 
there's a growing band of merry pranksters who who in who are are abandoning that that style of uh, those metrics for success and, and yeah i think i think the phrase most apt uh adventure travelers the dirty hippies of the two-wheeled universe yeah, it's kind of true actually <laughs> I think the best uh, bumper sticker I saw was on Mark's uh, Radio Man's Paneers, which said, uh, travel is the best education you could ever give yourself. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, The best education you can buy. It, it is. I would agree with that entirely. Entirely. And I'm looking forward to, you know, when, when, when baby Jacques gets older and he, he turns 16 or 17, I think instead of, um, you know, we can, we can give him the option, right? We can, we can put money towards university education or we head off on the motorcycles to south america for a year as a family yeah or or to wherever i mean i i think i learned more on these independent travels than i did in university but the one thing i'll credit university for is thinking critically and arguing rationally so not arguing from from anger but arguing my point and trying to substantiate my point that 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 is something that that i will never forget from university but the rest of it the way that this world works the rest the, the way that that i see myself problem solving um political differences religious differences in the world that all came from traveling and just having eyes wide open and saying holy crap like this this is this is the world awesome well thank you so much for sharing a piece of your world with us my pleasure and until the next time we have a chance to drink coffee or beer. Yes, indeed, and I hope that comes soon. But uh, I, I believe that there will at least be uh, six months in South Africa before that happens again. Yeah, we are now, we're in, we're in beautiful Eureka, California. It's gorgeous here. And we're, we're heading north. We have, we have a few stops to visit some friends, and then we will be, um, we'll be leaving for Africa. Well, I will be leaving for Africa early July. Whoa, which is coming up fast mm-hmm. in a month. Whoa. And then, um, yeah, we'll be back at Christmas time. So we'll see you probably next year. Would love to have the Cormier Circus. Talk to you later, Renee. Thank you very much. I think very few people in in at least the adventure travel slash motorcycle business that have published have garnered any, you know, acclaim. Good on you to be able to self-publish and and get that kind of stuff before you get distribution because that that says a lot. Yeah, it's been a a fun ride. I've learned a ton. I've learned a ton. And part of of learning all this stuff, um, the, the best part of learning it all is I'm actually able to help other people who want to go down this sometimes bumpy road so i've joined um the ted simon foundation you know who you know well mm-hmm. and and the ted simon foundation is a, a bunch of folks who have who have articulated their stories through self-publishing or regular publishing routes or radio or documentary and we are available to mentor other folks who want to do a big trip and then communicate about their trip to the world so if someone wants to do a trip and then self-publish a book, they will apply to the Ted Simon Foundation and uh, we might be able to get hooked up on a sort of a mentorship or at least I'll tell them what I did wrong, which is plenty of stuff. Mm-hmm. And they can choose that at their peril, yeah. which is great. And people, we must pass along these screw-ups to other people. Yeah, I think actually Ted convinced me I need to come up and cook for him. So that'll be interesting if I'm ever in Northern <laughs> California. Hey, you must do it. <laughs> um so so nowadays you spend six months, if I remember correctly, six months out of the year uh, in North America and then the other six months in South Africa. And South Africa. you do what there? Well, remember remember when I went to visit Colette and, and try and figure out if this whole thing is going to work, going to fly or not? I had a I had a dinner conversation with with a friend of actually the guy who introduced us. And he has he has those big overland trucks that carry 20 people and they go backpackers to cool place to cool place and cool place. Mm-hmm. But he's also a very keen motorcyclist, and he had, had just come back from Namibia with a group of friends on bikes. How great it was, the weather was great, the riding was great. And I thought, I wonder if people in North America would want to come to Africa and ride as, as part of a guided tour. I mean, riding in Africa is awesome. And well, Southern Africa is where we spend our time mostly. And it's safe, and it's fun, and there's lots of stuff to see. But if you only have two weeks, 
this is what the way that my brain was going. If you only have two weeks and you're flying all the way from North America, do you want to spend that two weeks kind of bumbling and finding dead ends and which is fun? Sure. If you have six months to do it. Exactly. But if you have two weeks, you really need to to hit the the most important stuff on good roads with with good scenery and have a great trip. So I thought I told Hank that if I can get people, can he arrange the bikes and the backup truck and stuff? And he said, yeah, let's give it a go. So we started with two trips that year, which was great. Screwed up plenty. Eh? Woo, boy, did we screw up. Well, we, we did, our distances were much too long, and the roads were a bit too difficult for, for the groups. Yeah. So then the next year we've changed, and, and this is now our fifth year of, of doing it. Can you believe it? So we are now, we're sold out for 2014. We've got five or six tours going now. We'll have seven next year. Um, and it's just such a treat to be able to show people an Africa that they haven't seen yet. They see Africa in the newspapers. They see Africa on CNN and BBC. And, and, and some of those reports aren't very flattering. And so what we get to do is do a bit of geography lessons with them because some folks think that Africa is a country. But, of course, it's continent. It's a continent with 59 little countries stuck inside. Yeah. And, and although there are beautiful roads all over the place, and I've been fortunate enough to ride on some of them, um, what those other places don't have is that beautiful ride, rural Africa, and then the animals on top of that. And for me, that's, that's the trifecta that's difficult to replicate anywhere else in the world. Yeah, so I think that we pull from a base that is, we get hardcore riders, uh, who, who people who love riding, but we also get people, and spouses often, who have always wanted to go to Africa since a little kid. And, and motorcycle trips don't appeal to them, but this one, when you get the motorcycle trip and the animals and the excursion into places like Okavanga Delta or Victoria Falls or Cape Town, then it starts becoming more of a, of a proper vacation rather than just a motorcycle ride. Mm -hmm. And the riding is not difficult. Um, we don't ride sun up to sundown. We're, we're not that type of group. We, you know, as we were talking you earlier. you might have done that earlier because it sounds like you said the days were too long. And, and people like us, I mean, I, you know, traveled by myself. I used to do, like, some serious distance, which would not appeal to everybody. But that's yeah. something that you have to look outside your own box and kind of go, oh, yeah, you know, they're probably not going to ride, want to ride for 12 hours. Right, and that was the problem. <laughs> or, or the speeds that we ride at. Yeah. You know, so the posted speed limit there is 120 kilometers an hour, which is about 70 miles an hour. Yeah. And although, although it, you can do it, the roads are great and fun, there's also a lot of stuff to see. Yeah, you're with You know, like right. massive bird nests, these, these um these nests that take over entire telephone poles and it looks like a big fuzzy lollipop. Well, you must stop at these things and, mm -hmm. and take photographs. And, and part of the things that we were learning way back then was if those motorcycles stop, it's a minimum of 15 minutes before they go again. Exactly. It is impossible to do a, a shorter stop. Some, someone dropped the glove, someone's got to go pee, someone's <laughs> got to grab, grab a water out of the truck. So those are the things that we, we learned with the first couple of groups. And now we're... we're it is such a fine-tuned little oily machine we've got going. Um, it's fun to be on it. As a matter of fact, my mom's coming this year. She just she's turned 70. Riding, that's right. You said she's riding on your bike. She's on the back of my bike. We've got her all outfitted with the climb stuff. Uh, she's great. never been on a motorcycle before in her life. Um, she's all nervous like a schoolgirl. It's, it's going to be great fun. And where does she live? Effort. She lives in northern Alberta. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Can't wait to hear about that. Yeah. You might hear her screaming from, from L.A. <laughs> <laughs> First getting that. You should have uh, have Colette get video of her getting on your bike on the back for the first time and taking off. The first off. time, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna put my feet? And she's very different from me. She's very she's very proper and she's very manicured. and. Whoa. Um, and we stay we stay in some rural place. We, we stay at the five-star Victoria Falls Hotel sometimes, but... We also stay in some very basic places, but she's sure. a good... And five-star in, in Africa is completely different than what, you know, uh, a, a different country would call five-star. That's, that's right. Uh, yeah. She's going to have a great time. No, absolutely. She's with you. She's me, and she's, she's tough as nuts, really. She grew up as one of those typical farm kids, one of nine, mm -hmm. no plumbing, no... So yeah. just tell her you're going to regress to your childhood years. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> with 
perhaps better plumbing, and that should be fine. And better food. We yeah. eat very well over there. So what are the different places that you guys go to on your tours? If you want to talk a little bit about your tours, I see we're still doing pretty good on time. Oh, great. So we, I, I think it's hard to beat um, Southern Africa for, as a destination for motorcycles. And I've been to a lot of places, but Southern Africa gives this blend of, of beautiful roads, um, sceneries, and beautiful lodges in, in a competitively priced environment. So we, if you can imagine the bottom of Africa, Cape Town is in the lower left-hand side, and we stay on that left-hand coast as we go up. So from Cape Town, we go up to Namibia, which is our little gem of a place, and then we kind of do a boomerang shake to Victoria Falls. And all of our tours sort of run in that area, southern Africa, but the left-hand side of southern Africa. Uh, it's very safe. Um, the roads, you can choose either gravel roads, which are very, very well manicured gravel roads or paved roads, depending. You, you have a choice on that. And, and the time of year, we run from July through to November. And the time of year tour depends, it, we, we differ them to hit the best weather mm-hmm. and also the best animal viewing. That, that's why we're there, is to see a lot of animals. And one of the trips is really a safari to safari to safari to safari. And, and the best time of that is in July and August. So. Yeah, because based on what we experience here in North America, it's flip-flopped. So you've got, that's like the winter season, essentially. That's right in the winter season. So winter in Africa, where we tour northern Namibia, uh, which, by the way, is the second least populated country on the planet. So we have hours of, of riding with seeing no one else, which is great. Wow. We. That that is such a that is such a delicious thing to be by yourself, and we're a loose group, so you don't have to hold the rope on the group. If if there's five miles between you and the next person, it's not a problem. You just wait at the next turn. But to be traveling in that um, in in that that area with with no one else around you, it's a very special feeling, and you get lost in your in your helmet, and that's the value of of traveling there. But um, to get back to the question about um, to when we're going to head out there, the winter is a very lovely time to be there. We're mid-70s through the day, high 30s at night, low 40s at night. Um, but in addition to that, historically no rain at those months, which makes my job easier and, and riding more pleasant. And the rainy season is sort of half done. Well, it has been done. We're halfway to the dry season. And that gives us two advantages. One, if we're there to see animals, we need to go when the animals don't have a lot of access to ambient water. So we need them to go to the water holes. Mm-hmm. So we need to be dry enough for that. They need to and wander. Also, they need to wander, right. And also, it's it's nice when the trees aren't full of leaves so we can actually see through the leafless trees. Mm-hmm. And that tour also goes to Victoria Falls. And Victoria Falls is one of the seven wonders of the world, of course. But to see it when that river is in full flood, there is there is a massive amount of water heading over those falls and if that river is in full flood you you don't see the falls you see two kilometers or a mile and a half of mist and then if you if you go to the opposite end of that if you hit it in december the river's low water and it's just kind of trickling and falling over over the edge so it's nice to hit it spectacular it's not spectacular so it's nice to hit it in between there's some mist um you can but you can see the falls you can see the rocks at the bottom it's all it's all very special did you see the, and I'm forgetting the name at the moment, the falls in the uh, Argentine-Brazilian border? Yeah, Iguazu. Yes, Iguazu. How does that compare with Victoria? Because my knowledge of Africa is real slim. Never been there. One day I will get down there. You you must come. It's phenomenal. So, well, the shape is the big difference. Um, Victoria Falls lies along a fault line, so it's, it's a long crack, basically, and the falls are pretty much in a straight line. And Iguazu is, is a big horseshoe horse, yeah. horse kind of place with uh, several different falls within it. Now, I don't know the, which is bigger or more powerful or how much water goes over. I think it, it's probably the, Victoria. Well, I think so, but people often come up with very funny categories. You know, how, how high does the water fall or how much volume per day or that kind of stuff. Sure. It, they're, they're both spectacular. They, they should both be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they should just both be seen. Just got to measure it in the middle, in the more pedestrian fashion of how much, oh, do you get? Yeah, <laughs> plenty. What's but the I amazement factor? What I can say is that on the, on the African side, there will be less people there. 
Sure. Which is which is always a nice way to visit things. Yeah. Another example of that is we we visit a place called the Fish River Canyon, which is the second largest canyon in the world behind the Grand Canyon. But the Fish River Canyon is a bit tough to get to because it's in the middle of Namibia. Stunning roads to get there. And when you arrive at the lookout, there will be maybe five folks there. You know, you compare that to the Grand Canyon, which has the interpretive center, the theaters, the restaurants, mm-hmm. the RV parking. There's none of that there. Wow. And, and the other nice thing is it's Fish River Canyon. If you want to drive your motorcycle up to and over the edge, then away you go. There is no way. not over. <laughs> there's, no, there's no waiver. There's no, none of that stuff, right? It's, it's just that's the way the canyon looked when it, the first person stumbled upon it and yeah. said, holy crap, look at this canyon. And it's, it's just like that now. So it's, it's, it's more, it hasn't been gentrified, it hasn't been safety, it hasn't, hasn't been modified for us clumsy humans, which is, it's, it's a refreshing way to see things. Yes, unregulated, but at the same time goes back to one of the courses that I reviewed earlier, uh, Gary LaPlante in San Diego. Know your terrain. So in other words, when you're near that canyon, make sure you're not going so fast that you can't see ahead of you to know when to hit the brakes so that you yeah. don't go over into the canyon. Yeah. <laughs> so what's, what's the shortest tour versus the longest tour that you guys offer? We do, um, well, we're switching, actually. It used to be 14 days, but we switched those to mostly 15 days now. Okay. So it'll be 15 days is the shortest, and three weeks is the longest. Nice. Now, I would love to have the riders there for six months. That would be an absolute <laughs> joy. Well, of course. <laughs> but it seems like most people on this side of the world um, need to work with that two-week two-week gap and and even even we push that a little bit because you'll need two calendar days to fly there and one calendar day to fly back so you really need two and a half weeks and and if you can arrive a day early to get your clock sorted out that's that's encouraged as well so it's almost three weeks yeah that's that's the sad plight of americans is the typical vacation time is two weeks and quite honestly one of the reasons why i haven't been to africa is because I measure distance, like flying distance from L.A. to wherever I'm heading. And if it's far enough, no, no way. I'm not going to go in there for a week and then fly all the way back. Because you've now created so much effort getting out there that you need to at least stay out there long enough to not be, you know, droning out on your way back thinking, God, I lost like five days just getting there and I only yeah. do it in a week. I mean, what's what's the point? So I end up either stockpiling vacation time or just eating the fact that I'm going to take a month off and I won't get paid for two weeks. That's kind of, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do that. So that's kind of how I plan things. But so how, uh, how does one get your book and how does one find out more about your, uh, your adventure touring? Well, this internet thing, which, which, which is a phenomenon I think is going to stick around is, is pretty handy for both of those things. The book is available on Amazon. That's probably the easiest way to, to find it. Just look up the University of Gravel Road. It currently enjoys a five-star rating from, from the kind folk that have reviewed it so far. Um, and unless they need a, um, a signed copy, in which case they just send me an email. I'll, and I'll give the email address at the end of the, our talk, talk. And for the, for the Africa trips, the easiest way is to go onto the website, which is renadian.com. And if I explain how Renadian got its name, it might be more memorable for folks. So I'm, I'm from Canada, as you know, <laughs> and I, I was working in, in Colorado Springs with this bicycle company. And apparently, this is unverified, but apparently Canadians say a few words that sound differently to the American pronunciation, like out and about mm-hmm. and car and boot and so on. So apparently I said something funny in a meeting one day. And the guy next to me said, ah, Rene is speaking bloody Renadian again. A mix between Canadian and Rene. And I thought, that is the most perfect word I've ever heard. And I'm going to use it someday. I don't know how, but I'll use it someday. So that's how Renadian came to be. And and, uh, an upside to having such a weird name, of course, that it's available as just Renadian.com. You didn't have to put any sort of funny adjectives in there. So R-E-N-E-D-I-A-N at uh, sorry, dot com it will bring you to the website and all the information for the for the tours are on there and links to testimonials and YouTube videos and and all of that happy stuff awesome yeah. well I'm glad you uh, took some time out of uh, out of your current journey to be able to spend some time with us 
is it uh, what you're doing again in uh, San Francisco? Is that something that's open to the public or no? Yeah, absolutely. Um, tonight is, is Thursday, May 29th. Mm-hmm. And at 7 o'clock at Adventure Designs, it's a shop in Hayward, California. The shop is on Whipple. We will be chatting from 7 until 9 o'clock tonight. And this will be the last of a, the last of an 18-city speaking tour for us this year. We've, we've started in Minnesota, gone down the East Coast at the BMW dealers, and now just finishing up. And from here, we'll go back up to Canada and get ready to, Af- to go back to Africa. So if folks want to stop by, it's a fun time. And it's not a motorcycle thing, so bring bring the wife or girlfriend. It can be date night. If you're in the Northern California area, it'd be well worth your time. And it'll be great to see folks. It's going to be a full house. It's going to be a fun time. So tonight is it, correct? There's nothing then, after this. Well, for this year. Tonight okay. will be the last one for this year. Next year, we'll, we'll re, re, redo the tour. Uh, dates and times to be decided. That, that ha- will happen in the next couple of months. That'll be put together. But typically... If folks are planning to to stop by and here and chat next year, we typically speak from between January and May. <laughs> Block your calendar. Awesome. So now I will get to editing this so I can post it and get it up as soon as possible. Yeah, shame. So now you have, now can, you have homework to do. Yeah. yeah, so that people can uh, can hopefully get out to Adventure Designs tonight and see you before you leave. That would be great. It's always fun to speak to a bigger crowd because there's a a larger chance that someone will laugh at my jokes. Mm. No, I don't really think that'll be a problem. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It was great meeting you at Overland and and taking the the, uh, van du jour to dinner. Yes. Climb crew. Fortunately for me, I did not get to the fourth date, fifth date uh, uh, Q&A at the end. Don't worry that the this this uh, this season is young. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're up on the chopping block next. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us, and uh, good luck. And hopefully, uh, some of these listeners uh, of mine will be able to get out tonight to uh, come check you out in Hayward. And uh, I look forward to hearing about the adventure with your mom this summer in Africa. I'll get her to do a little blobby thing, bloggy thing for you, and forward Perfect. it to you. That would be awesome. Perfect. Well, have a, have a good day, and I'll let you go because I know you've got other things going on. I appreciate it, Christy. Nice chatting with you. Bye. Cheers.